Michael's, please take it away. Okay. Um, just whoever's on the admins there, I see I'm getting some sort of uh, hacking thing there about collaboration from Mickey, Mikey, the Viking, I presume. So just to let you know, he's, gone, he's there. Um, so, um, yeah. Hello, everybody. I'm Pat and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm so happy and grateful to be here uh, on this Saturday night. Um, someone was texting me earlier on and they said, what are you doing? Are you staying in tonight or going out? And I said, no, no, I'm staying in. And I'm just thinking, I'm actually going out. <laughs> I'm heading out. I'm out. I, I'm, I'm at, at a sort of a, an event for the next hour and a half with, with some people that I'm really, really fond of. And I'm going to talk to some great friends. I see some uh, marvellous friends here already. And I'm out. I, you know, I'm socialising. I'm I'm part of this community of AA, and I'm with them now as I, as I speak, and that's really wonderful. So when when I do a share, I don't have any particularly ex, any expertise or any you know recognizably sort of uh, great knowledge of AA or recovery to give anybody. I, I only have my own story, and um, but I can put it in a way that it might sound you know uh, interesting. Sometimes that happens. And, uh, but the first thing I've got to do is, is to hope that the right path turns up because what can tend to happen with me is, uh, you know, there's the path that wants to impress you and he wants to show, tell you everything he's done and he's achieved and all his, his great sort of uh, accolades. And uh, I don't want him really. And then there's the path who's just me and uh, who recognises that I'm an alcoholic. Uh, same as everybody else here, just pull my trousers on in the morning, same as all the rest of the guys or girls. And, uh, and I'm just here to try and stay sober. And uh, I really prefer him to speak because he's a lot more interesting than the path who knows everything. Um, and it took me a lot of years to really dampen the other guy down uh, to sort of take take a back seat. But he come out in bits and pieces, but we we, we try and keep him at bay. So, um, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. I'm, I'm cross-addicted, so I don't want to really get into other substances, but I may sort of touch upon sort of certain points in my life that brought me to the, the lowest depths and uh, that were, you know, from, from other areas as well. But really, it's one big rag bag of where I went, who I was, how I couldn't cope and what I did to really, you know, deal with that. And um, my claim to fame, uh, like Bill Wilson, you know, Bill Wilson's father left and uh, I, I can blame identification with Bill Wilson. Lots of it, in fact, in lots of ways. But uh, my father had left when I was seven. And, um, you know, that was a huge thing. I was the eldest of three kids. My father was a musician and uh, he uh, he used to leave frequently, uh, going away to, to play in, uh, and gig, gigs and tours and stuff like that. It was very hard to get work back in those days, music. So he used to, to travel a lot to get work and he go to America and he go to holiday camps and, you know, places where they play for months. And uh, so I was used to him coming and going and it really didn't faze me. But I remember that morning he came down the stairs and his suitcase was packed and um, he said, you know, he got down on one knee and he said, uh, put out his arms to give us all a hug. There was me and my sister who was a couple of years younger and we had a baby brother. And uh, and he said to me, look after your mother. And my mother turned around and says, now I want you guys to know he's not just going working. He's actually leaving this time. He's not coming back. You know, so uh, and she did that so he would feel the maximum level of guilt as he walked down the road and got on that boat and went to uh, to London, you know. So that was really, you know, she didn't really particularly care about the emotional well-being of our three kids. Uh, all she wanted to do was to punish him and to make him feel as much misery as she possibly could. 
And, uh, and that was just sort of the tone of the way she was. So in one sense, him leaving was a big thing. Him leaving me with our mother was was the worst of the two things because uh, it got very difficult and she was very angry. She was a young woman who had loads of sort of dysfunction going on in her family. Um, and um, as I get older and I talk to more of my cousins, more of the family skeletons are coming out of the cupboard. And I'm amazed at some of this stuff that I'm hearing about my granny and the likes, you know. There's even talk of her being a lady of the night uh, and my granny. And uh, and this was sort of uh, at one end of it. And this is all amazes me. But it gives me an image, a picture of where my mother grew up. But I know by the time she came and had us, she was widely dysfunctional. And uh, she took it out a lot on me. And one of our favourite sayings would be, you're useless, you're no good, you'll never be any good, you're just like your father, I'm sorry I ever had you, I wish you were dead, I wish I was dead, I should have killed you at birth, that was one of our sort of nasty ones. Uh, I'm going to put my head in the oven, I'm going to throw myself into the canal, I'm going to do this and that. So we got this sort of repeatedly, and I'm being flippant about it, but that's at that formative age, you know, that stuff stuck. And that, you know, that was the sort of image that I... I had of myself that I was useless and that I didn't, I wasn't as good as everybody else. I didn't fit in and I needed to work harder just to make you like me. Who I was was not enough. So I needed to work at making, getting, gaining your approval or getting you to love me. So, uh, so that was the mode I was and I became this super nice kid. Super nice. I was the type of kid that would run over and ask the woman, would I help her with her shopping down the road? Or would I clean her windows? Will I cut your grass? Will I, you know, if I, if I had something as a kid, a toy, and uh, some other kid said, oh God, I wish I had one of those, I'd give it to them. Do you know what I mean? I'd give it to them because it was just like, to me, everybody else mattered above me. This was a logic that I had, that everybody was important and I wasn't. And I had to work my ass off just to get a tiny bit of recognition in the society that we, you know, I lived in. So that went on for a long number of years. And I really, that, that's when the, the scripts start getting written. When I, I play acted, you know, with the, with the guys and the friends to pretend to I was somebody. I imagined I was somebody and I, I pretended. Every day I went out with a script pretending to be in. I'd imitate people and I'd be good at taking off accents and I'd have, you know, American accents and cowboy accents and anything that I felt would, you know, I was I was the joker, the joker. That's what the school sort of saw me as. I was the one that had everybody laughing, but really had no, was getting nowhere academically. And uh, I remember one of the things that happened, I had very short sightedness. I had laser eye treatment a good number of years ago. My eyes are, are great now, but I had, I was very short sighted and I needed glasses to see. All my family had this and I wouldn't get them because uh, at that age, like the stigma of having to wear glasses, especially when these were these cheap uh, corporation glasses that the poor got. And that's the way we were at that stage. Uh, the stigma of having to wear them was just something but my fragile self-esteem I could not take on board. I could not deal with that. So I refused to wear them. I would put them in my pocket and I wouldn't wear them. And I used to go to, when I go to school, I'd try and sit up the front so I could see the board. And then I'd be a messer and a joker. So the teacher would put you down the back as a punishment. And from down there, I couldn't even see the teacher. Never mind the board, you know. So I spent years in just in this oblivion you know, and they'd come down the lanes of the class desk. There was about 50 people in the class and he'd come down looking at work and he'd just look at me and he'd just go, oh, and he would just go up the next lane. And, and they just, you know, educational system completely abandoned me 
and I was suffering from ADHD. No one, you know what I mean? No, no one back in that day knew what kids were going through, the trauma that was in their lives and how they were trying to cope. So that's all the way that was. And um, I, yeah, uh, I bet 14, I discovered a drink, you know, and I know, I know so many people share and everybody really, I think, talks about that just immediate sense of what that alcohol was doing for me. I felt it was doing for me something that what it didn't do for anybody else. It was healing. It was the great panacea. It was the great elixir. It was healing everything that I, I, I where every part of me that hurt. It was doing so. It was giving me the confidence that I lacked. It was giving me the ability to connect, the spontaneity, to belong. Um, I, I just I seemed I seemed like I fitted in when I was drinking. I, I feel like I connected and. Uh, and it was just so precious to me. And pretty soon, like there was, we'd only do it out of the weekend. And like pretty soon, I, we kept waiting from Saturday to Saturday to drink cider in the fields. I couldn't wait. I wanted to do it on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday. And so I sought out people who wanted to do it every day because to me, it meant more than just, you know, getting pissed. And um, we'd have these parties and I'd see that we're only 14, 15. Some of the guys getting sick, throwing the drink away. You know, and, and, and I'd cling that bottle and I'd hold it to my breast because it just, to me, it just meant something. This substance that I'd only discovered, I thought was the solution for my happiness, that it was going to sort of alleviate all the suffering and the pain I was going through. So, um, and it did for a while. It gave me focus and something to aim for and to live for. And as time went on, um, like everybody who's abusing a substance, and, and anyway, it didn't really matter. The substance was one thing, but I was destructive. There was a part of me, there was a self-destruct button in me that just I pressed every morning I got up. Um, I just couldn't sit easy and be normal. <laughs> I had to sort of be involved in things. And uh, I started hanging around with people in the, the city centre. Like, it'd be like the equivalent of the West End back in the day where we went, we had this one street and while the guys on the bottom of the street would be just dabbling in sort of relatively harmless stuff in today's terms, you know, the guys in the middle street, the middle of the street would be doing something else and the top of the street would be the end of the line. I would be at the top of the street because it was like I used to saw it as a challenge. I was never happy just dabbling. I wanted oblivion, really. I wanted to go where no one else went. And pretty soon I left the old schoolmates and the guys I grew up with behind and I hung around them with a a gang of criminals and drug addicts and, you know, and we drank and we did drugs and, and my life got into real mess. And by the time I was 17, I was coming home uh, covered in blood and head smashed in and um, police calling to the door. And uh, my mother, she couldn't take any more of this. So she rang my father and he suggested I go uh, to London and I lived there. And uh, so I did. Um, I, I made my way, he sent me to fair and I made my way to London. And my father took me in for a short time and uh, he tried, he, he tried to do his best. He tried to be the long last dad and he tried to buy me clothes and, you know, be patient with me and give me a bit of inspiration. He signed me into music college in Goldsmiths, in New Cross. And, um, you know, he, he did some things. And uh, but again, it was just always this self-destruct button was in me, it was always part of me needed to be just doing the wrong thing. And um, and again, I sort of began to meet the wrong crowd. He, he brought me down to the West End um, 
he, shortly after I arrived, within a couple of weeks, he brought me down to see a show. Jesus Christ Superstar was was on in the West End. It had been on for nearly 20 years at this at, up to that point. And uh, he brought me to see this. And uh, I thought it was amazing. And after we went for a meal in the West End and uh, we went for a walk down and he brought me down to uh, to Sharon Cross and to Cardboard City, as we used to call it. And uh, and he, he, we got a cup of coffee from this van. And I thought, what, what am I doing here? Like, I'm 17. Like, what am I? And, he, and he, he wanted to show me the homeless. And what he said to me was, he gave me this little lecture. And he said, this is how you'll end up if you don't get yourself together. This is what's waiting for you. This is where these people ultimately end, you know, sleeping in cardboard boxes under that bridge. You know? And what he couldn't fathom was, I actually identified with these people. And I saw them as my tribe. And the very next day, I'm getting a tube and a train and a bus into the West End to hang out in the West End. Because immediately I understood this is where I belonged. And, uh, and I did that and all I went with that. And uh, and it just it just got out of control and the substances took over. And I, I no longer, um, I heard Earl Hightower saying, you know, my drug of choice was flatline. And, and that's the way I was. It, it wasn't mildly intoxicated. It wasn't fall around drunk. It was flatline. I wanted to feel nothing. Um, and, and this is, I pursued that. And I became addicted to that sort of process. And um, and everything fell down around. I could, I could no longer survive, even in the society of these people. Uh, I was just living in on the streets. My father had thrown me out. Uh, I would be walking the streets um, and living in derelict houses. I was living in squats, which was okay at the time. It was like, you know, um, we were sort of calling ourselves hippies, but we were more homeless with long hair. You know, it was the sort of the way that was, but we called ourselves hippies and it was a cultural thing. And there was a few candle making, long haired, henna sniffing sort of guys going around with guitars and that. But like, I was homeless. You know, I mean, I was homeless and I was an addict and I was an alcoholic. And, um, but they threw me out eventually. And eventually I ended up sleeping in, in derelict houses where not even the squatters would go, where there's no water, no electricity, and no heating. And the floorboards, all the toilets have been ripped out by the builders so that people won't habitate in them. And um, this is where I'd end up. And, uh, and you know, I used to walk home. I was always walking for some reason. Uh, I was always walking and uh, like looking at my shoes. It seemed to me that the solution was on the path. You know, I was always at my head down, looking, thinking, thinking, thinking with this. Is this ever going to be anything? Is this ever going to get any better? Is this ever going to change? Where am I? What am I? Who am I? What is going on? Why do? Why, why can't I cope? Why can't I? Why can't I be like everybody else? And a lot of you will, will know uh, my little story about as you'd walk along in London in the streets. You know that the, the buildings, houses have three-story houses, and you have the the basement, mid ground floor, the top floor, and in the basement you'd have the bars. And I, I used to always be looking through bars at these people's rooms. And they, they all seemed to be having, was the fashion, was the red velvet curtains at the time. These crushed velvet curtains were the fashion in the 70s. And there would be this warm glow behind them. And I used to wonder, like, what was going on in there? You know, what, what would it be like to have somewhere like that to go home to? What would it be like to belong? What would it be like to be in there 
having a kiss and a cuddle or watching a video or putting the baby, getting the baby ready for bed, just having somewhere where I belonged. You know, there's a poet who wrote a, a fabulous poem and there's a line in it and he, he says, home, a place you don't have to deserve. And, uh, and I used to always read that, a place I don't have to deserve. Uh, you, don't, you shouldn't need to deserve your home. It should be just there for you. But I had none. And there was nowhere, nobody wanted me. My mother certainly didn't want my back and my father had thrown me out. So I'm, I'm about 19 at this stage. I'm homeless. I'm an addict. I'm wandering the streets. Uh, I'm all, I've got lots of infections going on from the abuse I'm giving myself. And, uh, and I feel like it's just... I just, just not tolerable. I can't do it anymore. Uh, the, the, I got, you know, there was always, did you ever, you know, when you're growing up, um, you're in addiction, there's always this chink of light. There's always this treatment center or this country or this destination or this person or this relationship or this drug or this whatever that you feel that there, there's just this thing up ahead. If things get really bad, there's this place I can go or there's this 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 final place I can I can, I can arrive at. And then some days you wake up and you realize there's nothing. There's no chink of light. There's nothing. Everything is gone. There's no hope. And it was at times like that that I decided that I would end it. And, uh, and it made perfect sense. Absolute perfect sense to me. Like, why should I? Like, I had nothing. Tomorrow had nothing to offer me. And, and that was the way I felt. But on one of those occasions, I did it a few times, like more. Um, trying to get attention I think maybe but you know I did it in a way I'd be found but then I planned it and I did it one night in a way that I would never be found in my thinking anyway and uh, and that it would work and I remember that morning waking up and, and thinking to myself this is it this is it this is my last day and you know I was happy you know and you hear people here talk about that you hear that I was happy there was something I, I had nothing to worry about anymore because all I needed to do was to get through the end of that day because at the end of that day my life would end and uh, we were in the squat in Kilburn, and uh, I remember it well, Gascony Avenue, if anybody knows that. I uh, poor, um, poor, um, I can't think of her name from Brighton now, sorry, this has gone on my mind. But used to, used to live in that same road, we shared it when I, but uh, yeah, I lived in this house, and uh, the people in it were going to this party that I all knew about, and I really knew about this. And as soon as they'd gone, I took this massive overdose. And I lay there on the bed and the room started to swing around me within minutes, seconds even, uh, the room started to swirl. And I lay there and I thought, this is it. This is it. Now, these are the last thoughts that I'll ever think. This is the last place I'll ever be. And I just looked up at the ceiling, this old wallpaper on the walls. And uh, and I just thought, this is it. Now it's over. And, uh, and of course, I woke up in Harrow Road, St. Mary's uh, intensive care again, being pumped out and everything and um, apparently what happened the young couple that were there went to the party the girl forgot her purse so when she got to the bus or to the train station she came back for the purse and uh, and they found me and the note that I'd left because even in suicide I felt shame you know I left a note sorry I haven't done this in your flat or in your room sorry to have done this take I love you bye bye because uh, even in, in even in that I felt ashamed and I needed to apologize to the world and uh, so that was that. I managed to uh, to, to survive that, and uh, because I was found early, I was in intensive care for quite a while, and they kept me in the hospital for about six weeks. And uh, so, you know, a lot of things happened. I, I have to say, when I came out of there, I thought, well, you know, I'm really after come back from death, really, and uh, but it didn't matter. 
because the part of me just still wanted to continue on, still wanted the destructive nature, still felt the pain that was inside that I wanted to kill would not go away. It just would not go away. And uh, there was nothing that would make Pat actually fit in to society and be a welcome, you know, card carrying member of the human race. Nothing would make me feel that. I just couldn't get that together. So I went on for a few more years of that sort of behavior and eventually, eventually I made it home. And um, I often share about the nun, uh, the few people there's Debbie there would know me he's talking about the nun, but there was a nun in the hospital and she said to me one time, she was an Irish nun and she said, uh, I won't see you next week. She used to chat to me and I won't see you, but I'm going to Africa and I'm going back to the missions. And, and I said, oh, why? Said, well, you know, the, the, the order tell me where I've got to go. And that's where I've got to go. I've been there before and i got to go back there. So I said, oh, OK. And she said, would you like to come with me? <laughs> and I said, what? She said, would you? I said, where? She said, Africa. Uh, and I said, how would I get there? She said, oh, I've already discussed it with the superior. We like we bring you like we pay your fare and you'd live with us and you'd work in the missions. And in a couple of years time, we'll you know, we'll send you home back again. And you know, see how you get on. And all she could see was this kid who was lying on this bed at 19 years of age, who was dying, really dying, physically dying. And she wanted to save me from the streets because she she sort of saw something in me that was worth saving. And, you know, I didn't take her up on her offer because I couldn't quite grasp how I'm going to get me drugs and me drink in, in Africa. But uh, I just was too afraid to sort of, you know, to make that decision. But that, that moment stuck with me. And I'm even sharing that here now, 40, 50 or whatever years later it is. And I, I, it sort of, it was like an oasis. It was like a signpost. And there was people that came into my lives in the darkness that did kind things for me or said things to me. And they just stuck in my brain and resonated with me. And they were all, I saw them as little invitations to come back into society to come back into the light, to come back into the world, that it's not complete blackness, you know, that, and, and the more that that would happen to me, the more I would think, well, maybe there is something, maybe there's something beyond all this. So I found my way home to Ireland and uh, I got married, you know, I, could, I, I managed to get a job, well, I went much the same for a while, uh, just sussed out the scene in Ireland and I'm back, back again doing all the things uh, I did, but there was a part of me that was changing. And, uh, and I, I got married in the, in the meantime. I got into a treatment centre and I came out, I was clean, still drinking, but for about a year. And uh, I met this woman. And, you know, the thing about it was if she had known me for the eight years prior to that one year or known what I was going to be like the eight years after that one year, she would have ran a million miles. But I just, there was a window when I looked sort of semi-normal. And during that window, she suggested we get married and we did. And uh, we had four kids. Um, the, when the first one was born, you know, it just made a huge difference to me. There was a part of me that I was all the time hoping or thinking or wanting, wanting to get well, not knowing how, but wanting. And when I saw this little baby, you know, and uh, in, in her arms, uh, I, I just sort of, there was a part of me just said, you've got to stop. You know, that you've got to, you've got to do something. You've got to find some way of uh, overcoming this, this way of life. Um, and uh, so this baby just turned, the worm turned. I didn't stop straight away. Uh, it took a, a, about a couple of years, but but I did. I, I knew a fellow was in AA. I rang him. He brought me to a meeting. And uh, I don't know 
really what it was like when I came into meetings. I know I identified, you know, I know I identified. I, I, I started hearing for the first time the nature of the disease. And, and the more I understood that I was suffering from a disease and what it was about and how it worked, the more comfort it gave me. Because for the first time in my life, I began to, I was just a big, you know, spaghetti junction of emotions and trying to grasp and understand what was going on in my head. But for the first time ever, some people who weren't doctors and weren't psychiatrists, who were just ordinary drunks, um, they just sat down and shared. And in some way, what they were saying made so much sense to me. And I immediately got this impression that whoever they are, whatever they're talking about, because I don't know what they're talking about, but whoever they are, I belong here. You know, and I, and I kept coming to the meetings and uh, I stayed sober a day at a time and the weeks went by and it became an adventure. You know, it came like, you know, where there was a few people started with me at the same time. We, we became friends. We were all hanging out together, the newbies, you know, and we'd meet up for coffees and uh, we'd take everybody's inventory and we'd talk about the old timers and all the shite that they talk. And, uh, and, and this is how we got sober and we'd come into the meetings and the people just laughed at us. But we got sober uh, and uh, we would we would count the days. Uh, we, one guy would be so much proud of the fact that he was seven days sober than I was. And that was a big thing for him. And he would remind me of that constantly. And uh, and this was the way, but it was it was fun and games, but getting sober in a community of alcoholics who knew they had a problem. And, uh, and it went on for 11 years. And, and amazing things happened to me during that 11 years was um, I started a little business. I always maintained that whatever spirit or abilities that I would have had that were all dampened and, and really snuffed out by the alcohol, the drugs, whatever, the addiction, whatever, when, when they were taken out of, the, out of the picture, I was then had the opportunity to exploit whatever talents that I had. And, uh, and I didn't recognize any immediate talents, but I had a good talent for talking to people. And I was already one of these impacts I was already good at you know connecting with people and talking to them. So I became a salesman and uh, I started a business and that went on. And within a few years, that was going really well. And all I did was get my meetings, say my prayers, get up in the morning, ask for help, uh, try and help a few people do my work. Four kids came along eventually and now I had a, a family. Fill the house with red curtains, red curtains everywhere, you know. And, uh, you know, and in the evening when I'm coming home, uh, from wherever I was doing my work when I'd pull up into the driveway, I'd see those red velvet curtains and like, the warm glow. And I'd think, yes, I'm walking in that door now. I'm going in to this place where I, I belong. And this is my home. And these are my family. And uh, and things went well, um, not into the stratosphere, but I, I started to, you know, buy brand new cars and maybe buy a second house and rent a house and you know, um, I, I was certainly had come a long way from the squats and the derelict houses in Kilmore. Uh, I was I was doing well and um, got a sense of myself. I don't know, really. I just got the sense of there's a, there's a little talk came through my mind that surely with all this newfound wisdom that, that I have, with all this knowledge that I have, with all this, all again, this insight into the the world, the financial world and business and obviously a successful businessman now and totally, totally different human being than the one who came into AA first. Surely it might be possible that I could take a drink, you know, and uh, and I did. 
you know, and after 11 years, I went to Spain on a holiday and uh, for the first time, and I saw them all standing outside the uh, uh, the bars in their shorts and their T-shirts and their sandals at this this golden nectar type of thing on the table. This these All these beers and lagers that I've never come across because none of them were around when I was drinking. And I saw them there and it looked so benign and harmless to me of a, of a Wednesday afternoon and it's holidays. It looked so harmless that you could just take that drink. And I did. And it took me nine years of drinking before I could manage to walk back into an AA room. And uh, initially I fought this whole thing. I was one of these people that was so defiant. Uh, I went onto all these websites and uh, I was always really big into technology. So I went down to these websites where people uh, gave, uh, attacked AA, anti-AAs. I joined all these forums and all these people said the program was this, the program was that. And I, I fed myself on that. The program was a lot of shit. But you know what? I just kept drinking. And I kept drinking. Whatever the program was or wasn't, the merits of it, what was right and what was wrong, alcoholism was alive and kicking in me. And I was going nowhere fast. Uh, and the, the little... Warning signs that I had to look out for went flying by me at a rate of knots. And, uh, and we're in a very short period of time. I'm back again and I'm drunk. This time I've got money. So it's a different type of drunk. I can put my hand and go to the ATM machine and buy the whole pub drink and it wouldn't faze me. So I'm not begging anymore for a drink as I used to. I'm, uh, I have money. But you know what? The drinking was still the same. The torment was still the same. The brain was still the same. You know, the... Uh, you know, the anxiety and uh, my marriage had been going downhill, like through, through even through my sobriety, things hadn't been going great. But the, the drinking period really escalated all that. And uh, and she left. She left in the middle of it. And um, I always share that, you know, I this is the house where we lived at that stage. There was uh, six of us here, four kids and myself, my wife and four kids in this house here because I had this other house and she wanted the other house because it was mortgage free. And, she wanted to just own it outright. I did all that stuff and signed all this and kid did all that, all that you do, all the responsible stuff. And uh, eventually she moved into the new house and I came home one Friday. She had said to me, she said, I think the house will be ready and uh, I'll be gone on Friday. And I came home on the Friday evening from work and uh, the house was empty. This house was just empty. And, uh, you know, and I walked in and all the pictures were still on the walls, all the... the the knives and forks were still in the drawers, the cups and the saucers, pots and the pans. She took nothing because everything was new where she where she moved. And uh, it was all still there and there was no one here. And I remember going upstairs to the to the kids' bedrooms and going into one of the, the two smaller ones, going into their bedrooms. And they had these uh, duvet, these bunk beds. On, on one of them was a take that duvet and the other had Ryan Giggs. And, uh, and I remember sitting on the take that duvet and just sitting there with my head in my hands, knowing I'm in the middle of a nightmare. Knowing that again, after all them years, under a different guise, wearing a different coat, but this fucker alcoholism has crept right back up on me and has me in the middle of a nightmare again. And I still didn't know what to do about it or how to get rid of it, even though I'd been sober. And I sat there and I looked at the kids' drawings on the, the walls and, the, and I thought... There, there's something terrible going on here. Now, they were only a, a mile away. And I mean, they were coming every weekend. They were staying the weekends. Da, 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 da. Some of them moved back in with me as they got a bit older. And this Christmas, a couple of days time, 
you know, my wife, my ex-wife will be here making, cooking the Christmas dinner in my kitchen, my, my cooker, for all the kids in this house, you know. So that's how things have changed. But I remember the despair of that sense of, uh, what am I doing? I'm like, well, I'm on this, this train to destruction and I can't stop it. So um, I made my way back. Um, you know, it was a long journey. Um, I've shared them with a friend. I think she might be on tonight. I'm not too sure. But there was whatever happened to me was I had to just reach this place where there was nothing. There was nothing left. No sense of I have an answer. No sense of any ability to beat this thing. No sense of, of knowing that um, tomorrow is going to be another day or the future looks bright. Nothing. There was nothing left. Now, I had got to that point in Kilburn. And the answer was to end my life. Wasn't a very good answer. As they say, it was a permanent solution to a temporary problem. But I was back in the same place, but I wasn't thinking suicide. I was back saying, what is the solution? And I, I knew about AA. And I knew about, uh, I knew about that powerlessness that I eventually sort of reached. And, um, and it was time to sort of pick up that, the mantle again and to sort of start going back to meetings, you know. And, and I did, and that was a little over 17 years ago. And uh, I made my way back. I'm longer sober now this 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 time around than I was my first sort of tour of duty. And uh, was AA different? It was much the same, but I was different. You know, I came in beaten, put my tail between my legs, wiped the, wiped the slate clean and started back from zero. You know, I didn't go in, I did initially for the first few months I went in and out and drinking in and out and drinking and when I went in I'd lecture them all I'd tell them all about the stuff I'd read about AA culture cure I'd tell them about the statistics about how AA isn't working I'd tell them about only 10% of people who come into AA actually get sober I'd tell them about Bill W taking acid and I'd tell them about all this stuff that I read all this stuff that I needed to feed myself in order to keep away AA away from me you know but I stopped all that because I knew that that room, in all its rights and wrongs and faults and failures, that room was what I needed to stay sober. And I went in and put my tail between my legs, shut my mouth. As was said to me in my very first meeting, take the cup mold out of your ears and stick it in your mouth. I didn't even know what it meant. And by the time I did finally understand what it meant, uh, I needed it more than anything else. So... I got sober again, you know, I, I didn't do, when I got sober the first time I was Mr. AA, I was, uh, you know, area secretary, I was this, that, you know, because I, I, I'm the guy that wears a suit, you know, I'm a businessman, you know, I get about the tramp in London, but I'm a businessman, so I do the area secretary, the PI, I do, you know, I sign up for all this stuff, and uh, I didn't do that this time, I just got my meetings, and kept myself to myself, and tried to hold on to my sanity, uh, for as, as long as I could, until things improved, you know. Um, as it happened, I, I don't know how it happened, but COVID came along. I was a computer pro. I was a website developer. I had my own online business. Uh, I had a lot of skills in, in social media and technology. I started middle of the bed. You all know about that. Pax did something around the same time, I remember. A few of us just uh, who were able to do this stuff did it. And uh, thankfully, um, we're all still going, still doing that. Those meetings are still running. Uh, it's been an amazing journey. I don't have much involvement in it these days. I just go and I get the meeting and get a bit of help and uh, help out where I can. But uh, but in some way, in some way that did happen to me. You know, I was able to use the gifts that I had 
um, you know, what the knowledge that I had, I was able to use to help alcoholics during the the, the during the, the pandemic. And I'm grateful for that. And, and the fact that that still goes is nothing to do with me. It's more to do with the alcoholics themselves. They keep it going because they're they've built their community, of which I am just a part now. But I get this little bit of satisfaction when I look back and think, yeah, I was instrumental in making that happen. And I'm really good about that. Um, I'll finish it just saying, you know, when I first got married, um, when the first baby, when the baby came along, I was I was drinking and drugging and I was at my horse and the baby came. As I said, it was a turning point for me. But I remember looking at the baby in a cot in, in this caravan we lived in and I was drinking. And I remember thinking, look at this little baby here and she's never going to have a life. She's never going to have anything. She's going to have the low self-esteem that I have. She's going to have the, the, the inability to belong. She's going to know the loneliness and the heartache that I felt all my life. And she'd be better off really not living this little limp and would be better off not being alive because she has nothing to look forward to uh, as with me as a father. And I remember with my glass of whiskey, drinking it, looking into the cotter or lying there. And that, they were the morbid thoughts that I had, you know. And uh, as the years went by, when I got into AA the first time, um, and one of the jobs I had as, a, you know, when I was sober, two or three years sober, was I used to bring her to tap dancing. And uh, it was part of one of the things that, you know, kids take up all these things, horse riding, blah, blah. She took up tap dancing. There was a woman taller in there on the road. And I used to bring her every day and go and see me sponsor live nearby. So it was a little ritual. I did it for years. And, uh, and then she started getting onto shows and she get onto bigger shows and she was great at it. And then she got onto this really big show uh, now, only she's only seven or eight now, so she's not like stardom, but, but a very big uh, venue in the Gaiety in Dublin. And um, we all went, you know, and uh, they did this routine. This routine it was called Happy Feet, where the, the little kids, uh, she was in the middle with the pigtails and the, the whole lot, and these two little lads with this, the, the dicky bows and the waistcoats, you know, and they'd dance up to each side of her and they'd all do this thing, you know. And she was there in the middle and she was doing it. And uh, she came out and she did this, right? And it was, and then all the bigger kids came in after. But at the end of it, okay, the 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 audience stood up and gave them a rapturous applause, you know, calling for encores and clapping because the kids were just so impressive. And at that minute, in the audience, all the family were to the left and to the right of me. In the audience, my mind shot back to that caravan about seven or six or seven years prior to that, and it shot back to that me looking at her in the cot. And thinking that she'd never have anything. And just in an instant, I just knew there was a God. That's all I can say. I knew that my perception of the way things were going and God's perception of the way things are going to go were two different things. And I was never religious, but I knew there was a power in my life that was doing more than I was able to do. There was a power greater than me, and he had been active in, uh, in, the, in, my, in my firstborn's life, you know. And just to finish up, uh, Rachel is her name. Um, she graduated during COVID as a doctor in Trinity College in Dublin. Uh, she's currently uh, on the on, on a course to be a consultant anesthetologist. She's two years into that. And uh, she's an amazing character. And, you know, we, we didn't have the graduation during COVID because of COVID. But a, couple, a year later, they had a graduation in the college. And I wanted to go to it particularly because... When we got there, the gates of Trinity, it is a poster permitted the bed that I made. I make all those posters, but there's one that I made of the gates, the archway of Trinity College. And I wanted, I got my photograph taken with her there. And she couldn't understand why I wanted to go out there. But the story was that 
that archway where I got her to stand and we'd take our photograph with her just having been conferred as a doctor was where I used to beg. And on Friday night, I used to go to that spot and beg off the students. Uh, and I wanted to just stand there, not in a sort of triumphalist way, but just to remember, like sitting on that little path against that wall there was me begging. And here I am standing here many years later with my daughter, beautiful daughter, um, and uh, she's just been conferred as a doctor. And all my kids are accountants and great. They're all doing really great. And, and it was moments like that that just reminded me of the night in Kilburn and the darkness and the blackness that I never thought there would be any way back from. That the only solution to the pain of what I felt like to be me was to not be me and to not exist at all. And I look at my life and what's happened since. It's been ups and downs and ins and outs. And mental health, you know, is a difficult thing, challenge at times. But by God, I'm sober. Uh, I'm helping people. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing stuff in life. I built that beautiful heart behind me there a year ago, the course that I'm on. And uh, I, my life is my life is good. And, uh, and it's thanks to AA, God as I understand them. And of course, thanks to all you lovely, wonderful people who invite me here and listen to me waffling on for 50 minutes. So I shall leave it at that. Um, I just went a minute over, not too bad. And thanks very much.